0: Bonjour
1: FMH Podcast listeners. This is Sarah Burlingame, FMH blogger and friend of the
0: podcast, asking for your support.
1: We know Lindsay has done our community a profound service, bringing the voices of women in polygamy, intersectional feminism, and of course, the best and most hilarious commentary on schlocky low-brow Mormon culture on the blogger knuckle. Please show your support by clicking on the donation link, or better yet, subscribe as a monthly member. If we believe that the work that women do to lift all of our voices is valuable, we need to support that work financially. If knowing that you had an FMH podcast waiting for you was the only thing that got you through the last Thanksgiving dinner without going full on Sonia Johnson, please give and give
0: generously.
1: One, two, three, mm-hmm. go. Feminist Mormon.
0: Hello Housewives. and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Feminist. Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year polygamy to try and understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage and how it affects us today. And I've brought on uh, one of our favorites, the great Corey Howard. Corey, can you say hello? Hi. (laughs) So, Corey, everybody loves you now, and you're getting tons of messages to help with history, and people are getting all excited about their family history. Have you noticed that?
1: Yeah, it's cool. I like
0: it. Yeah, uh, Corey and I have talked about maybe in the future we're going to have a set up an actual tour to the state archives or the DUP or something, so... Stay tuned when when things settle down. But, Corey, tell us what you're working on today. Okay. Uh,
1: today we're talking about John Wickersham Woolley's three wives. And um, you already did uh, an episode about John Wickersham. He's kind of the, the linchpin between... Uh, well, I The terms are a little funny here for me after listening to the other episodes, I want to say original Mormon polygamy, <laughs> um, but so the pre, when the, John Wickersham is the, the linchpin between approved LDS polygamy, including the secret approved, and then when the church really truly stopped practicing polygamy, he did it, and that's where the various fundamentalist groups came out through
0: him yeah right? and, I, and i wanted so. to i've been i've been plugging this to everybody but uh the fundamentalist portion of our research is mostly focused on the stories of the men and i've been saying that cory has been doggedly researching the women in these stories mm-hmm. and a lot of this is original research from what i'm aware of right cory um well
1: it's sort of original i mean whenever you read They don't say too much about them. So, yeah, there's uh, stuff that is from the censuses and things like that. I I don't want to claim original research because, like, one of the wives, her son was a historian, so he told her story from his perspective quite a bit. And um, one of the other wives, you know, another wife was, uh, she was, you know, she was prominent sort of in her own right, but still not a lot was written about her. And then another final wife, she, uh, almost nothing was written about her. So, yeah, some original and some just long-forgotten things, I
0: Well, I just want to thank you for doing all that hard work to bring their stories to light. Oh, well, it's fun. I think it'd be, if, if you were, like,
1: writing a book, all of these people that we end up looking at, because we're not doing, you know, we're not writing books about these people, but there's always places you could look for more. Like, if this were my family member, then there's places I would, go
0: even further looking. The fun thing about Corey is she knows the ins and outs of everything. She knows how to get records from the state hospital. She knows how to find missing files at the DUP. She's she's great. You're like the family history detective. Thanks. So so let's go let's get to it. You have this great outline of the story of the the grandfather of Mormon fundamentalism. Let's talk about the I guess if you will the grandmothers. Take us into the timeline that you've got.
1: Okay, so, um, the, in, okay, John Wickershamouli was born in 1831, um, in Pennsylvania. So, um, one of his wives would already be alive in England. He, of course, had met her. And then, um, his first wife, Julia Searles Enzyme, was born in Nauvoo just a couple years after he was. Um, but, in you know, he was in Pennsylvania, she was in Nauvoo. It was John Woolley's father, Edwin, was the missionary who, who who converted the Ensign family. And then the Ensign family came to Nauvoo, which is where Julia Searles was born. Edwin, John's father, would marry Julia's aunt. So... All of this, these fam- these two families stayed pretty close when the Woolies came to Nauvoo and the Ensigns were both there. John and Julia kind of grew up together. They were teenagers together. John's older sister, Rachel, used to kind of follow them when they were... John would have been 14, and Julia would have been 12, and they kind of had, like, you know, the little preteen romance going on, and they would go places, but Rachel... And another one of the woolly kids would, would always be around, so they were chaperoned. So they knew each other as young people. Then um, when people started leaving Nauvoo to go uh, to, to Utah, Julia's family would leave sooner, and she would arrive in the valley actually, for John. Not by much, but a little bit. John's family, meanwhile, just to give a little background on polygamy from his perspective. So John's father was a polygamist. One of his polygamist wives was Julia's aunt, and John's mother was first wife. She really struggled with with polygamy. She left for a minute, you know, for a few months to go back to her family while she really tried to figure out if she could stay with her husband. So all this was upheaval was going on. John's mother comes back. They prepare to leave Nauvoo, and another wife stays behind and says, "I'm not going to Utah." But once the, all the fam, once these two families were both in Utah, John and Julia end up, you know, reacquainting themselves. And by the time, you know, she was seven, Julia was seventeen, and John was nineteen, they got married. And it was actually a pretty fancy marriage. Their Salt Lake City wedding, one of their guests said that well, it was all done up in style. They had a supper and a grand ball, and um, they and they kept it going until midnight.
0: Do you know where it was hosted at? This
1: this account that I'm using is from Leonard Arrington. He wrote a book about John's father. It says, the wedding, Julius Earl's Ensign, it was all done up in style. They uh, had a groomsman and a bridesman. And in the evening they had a supper and a very good ball. And one of the people that helped wait on the tables is whose journal they get. The They had a nice company, good supper. They had a dance after supper and a few songs and stories and dismissed at 12 o'clock. So it doesn't say exactly where. But anyway, so I they, like yeah, they're kind of, and they were already kind of prominent pioneer families. Julia's father was a carpenter. And he was working on the on the Salt Lake Temple like so many people did. And the Woolies were, uh, John particularly, because he was young. When he crossed, he went back and forth a couple times to help people immigrate. So Julia actually was home quite a bit without him. And they had... You know, they would have a few children during all these years. They ended up having six children. She would be home, and he would be either helping with the immigration or with the Black Hawk War or the Utah War. And so he was gone quite a bit. Some of the best places to get the personal stuff for some of these women, because in the actual, you know, quote, serious history books, they don't talk a lot about the wives. Even in John's obituary, a couple versions of him, they didn't mention his wives. Not, not even like one. So, in case they were hiding polygamy, they could have at least mentioned one wife. So, in the in the family histories that people have submitted to the D.U.P., there's a lot of personal detail, and that's where for Julia, I got some of the st- things about her that she loved animals and. She would have cats and dogs and horses and she had her own horse that she liked to ride and had, you know, taken care of the home like a typical. When you read the story though, this is what's interesting, is it, it's a typical patriarchal family. You know, with typical with a very standard, standard walls. But it's, you almost think, oh, well she liked it and maybe she did. You know, it, he seemed to be, a responsible person. You know, he felt his care, caretaker, responsible, provider, responsibility. I really got that impression of him about him. You got the was the, always the impression of him for, was
0: always from, from, it was generally from everyone?
1: Um, pretty much. Well, even in the, from the family histories that people wrote about the wives, and about him, of course, because they're gonna write a glowing story of him from the family point of view. That he was you know, he was a good provider. That kind of a patriarch.
0: Yeah, because he's been sort and of m- mythologized now as this almost Joseph Smith type character in some fundamentalist groups.
1: Yeah, well and I could see where they I could see where that comes from after a couple of things have come to light here. Like, um, him being present, it being his father's home, that the first, uh, the first time that the revelation, or one of the first times that the revelation on the celestial marriage was read, and that's one of the earliest records they have, so if it wasn't the first time it was read out loud, it's pretty much perceived to be when Hiram Smith and, and um and Joseph Smith read it, it was in Edwin Bullington's home. And so then, when Julia kept the house for him, and, you know, as his wife, and the polygamists were being persecuted, she was, again, taking care of these, you know, again, persecuted polygamists that are being chased by the government, told to, they're going to want to put them in jail, so they would hide them in her house. So, this kind of cements their position as heroes, I would think, in the fundamentalists, and there's some more things that come later, because during the underground, um, and one of the time, John, John Taylor used to uh, hide at their house quite a bit. So there'd be him and his secretary and some bodyguards, you know. And she's cooking for all of them. Um, and that's another thing that the family record talks about is how good of a cook she was. And but during this time, John Taylor, it was. 1886, and there's uh, a record of, well, the story is that John Taylor prayed about whether they should let polygamy go, if they should discontinue the practice. And this was while he was in John Woolley's home. And he said that, that what happened was that he spent the night with a visitation by Christ and Joseph Smith. So, in the morning, they read the answer, which is that they should always defend polygamy. And again, the only two women, since this is the woolly home, there's these men there, and the only two women are Julia and one of her daughters. So they're among the group that swear to protect polygamy. So I'm sure... This is just another link in the chain of John Woolley or the Woolley family in general being the keeper of those keys.
0: Well, and I love that you bring this up because this is such an important thing to remember. You know, the myth of Mormon fundamentalism really focuses on the patriarchal line and these men. But I love that these women were part of this sort of promise, this really big responsibility. They were there.
1: Yes, it was an eight-hour meeting, and they were put, quote, under covenant that he, he or she would defend the principle of celestial or plural marriage and that they would consecrate their lives, liberty, and property to this end. And that's from Joseph Musser's journal. You know, so, but they were included in that. And that's, you know, about the biggest piece of egalitarian evidence or evidence of an egalitarian marriage <laughs> for him and Julia, which... It's not, I don't, you know, there's nothing to say that he wasn't egalitarian, but when you read these stories about her being this quiet woman who stayed out of public life and she was a good cook and she took care of all these people, it makes her sound like a passive person, you know. And I, I think she was an active supporter. She, in her home, it wasn't just people like John Taylor that hid. There would be, um, if you married, If you were a woman and you married a man and you weren't the first wife, you didn't get to live with him, and you couldn't be public about being married. So, if you got pregnant, what do you do? You know, you have to go live somewhere. Some women ended up living somewhere absent a husband and looking as if they were, you know, unmarried women. Or it was almost as bad when people would presume that you had a a polygamous husband somewhere. So some of these women also lived at Julia's home, and they would have their babies there sometimes. They her home, the home set uh, was seven or eight rooms, and they had they had a trap door in the kitchen, and so there was a room underneath the kitchen. If someone was hiding in this room under the kitchen, they would move the rug and the kitchen stove over to obscure the trap door. There was also a secret hole in the barn. So if there were people out in that part of the yard, and the, the alert was sounded, that um, inspectors were coming or investigators, they would they would use that place to hide. So there, you know, she she ended up being the one handling a lot of this So at the same time she was doing this. Sometimes John was taking someone. Some that was out that had someone else that was on the underground somewhere
0: else to hide. Yeah, and monogamists would have been involved in this, right? In hiding for the underground. Monogamists. Yeah, like like everyone, everyone would be involved. It's not. I mean, sometimes when I think of the underground, I think of plural families supporting other plural families, which definitely happened. But a lot of people were involved in hiding these people on the underground. Oh, yeah,
1: there were there were some people. The name is going to escape me right now.
0: That, that were,
1: you know, avowed monogamous. It was well known that they were monogamous. They weren't, like, maybe they had a wife who everyone knew would not put up with that. But, um they could still, then they would be, like, above reproach. They would never be suspected they were hiding someone, because they're a monogamous. They're not one of them. And so, they would, uh, they would also be involved and, and do their part. You know, there's, there's lots of reasons to help. <laughs> you don't have to be... It's kind of like supporting any... Because at that time, they're perceived... Anyone involved in polygamy is kind of perceived as an oppressed group or persecuted. And so you don't have to be in the group to feel like you ought to help them. So so, anyway, so they're married. Um, they got That was... They got married in 18... They got married in
0: 1851.
1: And meanwhile, while all this is happening with them... But then, them being married and um, working with the Underground and before that with the wars, Anne Everton, who would be John's second wife, was living in England and she had been converted. But prior to being converted, she had married, she was married to this man, Ben Roberts, and he, he was a you know, he was a miner sometimes, and sometimes he was—he took care of horses in people's stables, the livery in the stables, and the man who handles the horses. But anyway, <laughs> but so he, his income was sporadic, and um, and there was a difference between like a thoughtful, kind of studious person. She liked what she liked to think about you know the why and and how of things. And she said that when she married Benjamin, part of what she, she liked about him was, you know, there were things about him that were opposite of her. That she was swept away by his sunny, genial nature. And he was also, you know, six feet tall, which wasn't very average back then. So she was, you know, she was really in love with him. He was a little bit of a hard man to live with, I guess, because he would financially, He would go away to work. Sometimes he'd send her money, sometimes he wouldn't. Uh, sometimes he would go to the racetrack and spend the money, sometimes he'd win, sometimes he wouldn't, sometimes he drank. B.H. Roberts was her son from this marriage, and he's, uh, a lot of it's to his credit that her story survives, because he liked, he liked to tell, he was a storyteller kind of person, so he ended up being a historian. Um. and in the process, it was during this time, she would also take in work to help plans meet. And she was a very skilled seamstress and milliner, someone who, you know, makes hats for rich people. And so she would take in extra work to keep, you know, keep food on the table and, don't you know, whatever else they needed to do if, if Ben was out of town. And it was on one of these trips she was taking some finished product one of her customers, and she encountered some missionaries that were standing on the corner, you know, talking about Mormonism and and the United States, and so she started listening to them, and this is how she became converted. She would hear more and more of what they had to say, and she would come home and talk about this with Ben, her her husband, when he was home, but he wasn't interested, it wasn't his kind of thing, he didn't really, you know, he just wasn't interested in, in religion. So she decides she's gonna get baptized, but she knows that he's not gonna be happy with that, so she does it secretly. But when she was coming home, she realizes she's gonna come home wet. He's gonna know that she was baptized. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so she, she gets, she manages to get home and change and lay her clothes out so that hopefully they'll dry by morning. But when he gets up in the morning, he he sees her clothes and touches them or whatever, but he recognizes their way. And he knew that she was, you know, converted, at least in heart and mind, and that she wanted to be baptized, so he says, he says to her, he goes, Ann, I believe these has been dipped. And, and she said, so what? I joined the true church. And he eventually would be baptized, and he wasn't like ever super religious, but he paid his tithing. And something happened. I don't know whether he, uh, you know, because he was still a word of wisdom wasn't enforced. It wasn't, and all. but it was also one way to tell who was super Mormon even back then. But something happened. And I would imagine he might have still had a few beers, or maybe he gambled and they, someone chastised him from the local leadership. And he didn't take to that. And when he got angry, and the end result, was that he was excommunicated, so he wanted nothing to do with Mormons after that. But, you know, Anne continued, and and this is when their son was born, who would eventually be B.H. Roberts, right? And Ben named him Henry Roberts. So when she said okay, but then she took Henry to the missionaries and had them bless him, Brigham Henry Roberts, after Brigham Young, but didn't tell her husband Ben. So it's two secrets, right? She gets baptized in secret, and she names her child and his child after a Mormon leader in secret. So Ben goes off to work again some more, and it takes him further away, and he's gone a while. And she has to, you know, she has to make ends meet. This happened to a lot of women. Men would go away, and they would get paid. and The women would just have to hang on tooth and nail and do what they could in the meantime. So she's living this way, and he sends home a big check. Or I, don't know, the check. I don't know if it women in a check. If you mailed, how would you send cash back then? I wonder. But she gets this money from her husband and he says, Okay, I'm sending you all this money. This should be enough for you to come live with me. Come here where I'm at. Because he had a good job with someone who was high up on the nobility structure and he wanted her to come bring the kids. And she wants to go to America. So she goes and talks to one of her local Mormon leaders about what should I do? You know, I have this money my husband sent me and there's no there's no record of the conversation, but the end result is that she's going to go to she's going to take this money and go to America, but she has four living children and there's only enough money for herself and the two children. One of the her most recently born children uh, one of the stories said he had encephalitis. I don't know if that's what it was, um, because we're talking mid 1800s. So, when he was ill, and he'd been ill since he was born, so he was going to go with her for sure, and another daughter, leaving behind an 11 year old daughter and five year old B. H. Roberts. So, she arranges for the 11 year old to stay with her sister. Her sister. And brother-in-law have a a ceramic business. And so the 11-year-old girl is old enough that they figure she can contribute enough to the family income that it, it will be okay for them to take her in. But they won't take VH because he can't do anything. He's only five. He can't work. He'd be more of a hindrance than a help. So, nope, they're not going to take him. She leaves him with some people she met at church. They must be nice people. Because they were, they were Mormon like her. They didn't have any kids, but the husband was a really good orator and he would preach. So she, she left her five year old with him and, and his wife. She gets on a boat and she goes to the United States. Um, somewhere in here, she sends a letter to her husband Ben telling him what she's done. And as you can expect,
0: he was really,
1: really angry. And, yeah,
0: that's kind of a big deal. Uh huh.
1: And and I, you know, I really kind of empathize with him at this point. I mean, sure, you know, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't nice when he drank, or maybe he didn't really send much money, and she was making, you know, she was doing most of the work when he was gone to cover the bills. But his intentions were that she come with the kids and, and live with him. And she turned around, and here's this church in the middle of his business again. They have now convinced his wife and family to go to the United States. And I don't know if the letter gave him any clue about where his two children in England were. He might have been able to find the daughter, the 11-year-old, because she's with Anne's sister. But what happens to BH is he's this couple that she gives him... Be cared, you know, gives him to to be cared for. They wander all over. They become these itinerant Mormon creatures that really aren't that Mormon. They they go to taverns. They kind of they, I think they at one point they tried to trade BH for someone, you know, trade him like say he was big enough to work somewhere and get paid, sent him somewhere. The um, story about his childhood changes a little bit in detail, but it's overall. He did not. He wasn't, he wasn't taken good care of. So I imagine his father would never have been able to find him if he tried. So Anne, in the United States now, she, she's traveling, and she's got the one little girl and then the sick little baby boy. And the baby boy dies. And it's one of those really sad pioneer stories where she... He dies, and she doesn't want to tell anybody. So she carries him around with her as they're walking for three days. And somebody figured out, you know, that that there's something wrong with that baby, or there's something wrong with her. And the the captain of the wagon train um, made her have a funeral and bury the baby. And she was, you know, she was kind of unhinged. There's several. There's other people's records, not just. her families but descendants of the captain his journal also recorded that she had she was so distraught over burying this baby in just a dirt hole that he went and found something on his wagon that was small enough of the wooden box a bread box and they put the baby in there and so it made it a proper enough burial that she could she could stand it and then they moved on. So, she gets, they finally get to Utah, and, pretty shortly after she gets there, and here's, because one of the family narratives is that, when she sent Ben Robert the letter about leaving for the United States, she hoped that that would mean that he would follow her. But, pretty soon after she gets, within the year of arriving in Utah, she marries a man that she met on the trip across the plains. That's John Nichols. And, so, they start a family, you know, they start to settle, you know, they start a, a home, and they have a baby, and he dies. He gets caught up in a thresher, and is killed by the blades in that. So, now she's got a little girl from England, oh a brand gosh. new baby from this husband, and and she's still trying to save money to bring her two kids that are somewhere in England. So, she's taking in more sewing and, and doing what she can. She finally gets she finally gets enough money that she can arrange for them. And I think what happened part of this, too, was that the story got back to a higher-up person that uh, took whatever she had and said, we'll finish the rest with the perpetual perpetual immigration fund. And they reach out, and they find people in England. They find her daughter because they knew where she was. Took a little while longer to find her son and they finally get them together and those two kids it's been four years now those two kids come over on a boat by themselves and uh with someone on a wagon train and Anne had sent things to be given to them when they got off the boat but those things of course didn't make it you know all these people that are trying to do things along the way there's there's still always someone scamming and we were very lucky if any of your things made it where they were supposed to. So, but they they make it back, and B.H. Roberts was, even with all he's been through, and he's lived kind of rough, he looks at her house, and he's ashamed, because her house was this log house, and it was, let me just read the description. It was made of logs, and it had a dirt, and they had someone, probably John, the husband that died in the pressure, had started to build an, an addition and there were walls off to the side of the original house, but nothing over it. And that's what he sees when he gets there. And he said he was ashamed to think this is where his mother lived. And um, So she marries again, and she marries this man named Seth Dustin. And he he actually was the man that baptized B.H. Uh, Roberts and, and becomes his stepfather. He Seth Dustin had children of his own from a wife that had died, before and ann raises them he's not seth isn't a nice guy he's not home he he's a minor he drinks and um, his sons drink and they're rowdy and BH is also caught up in this and they you know it's just a lifestyle of the minors and when eventually all of seth's children from his first marriage are adults seth and ann get a divorce but she still, now she ha- but she did have a child, Seth, so she has this little girl to raise. And now she's again single, has two or, th- let's see, she would have four kids in the house. Um, And this is in, she divorces Seth Dustin in 1884. With Seth Dustin, they were, they weren't far from Centerville. They were nearby and so were the wolves. So now they're kind of nearby each other. I don't know if they knew each other or how they knew each other. But it's within the next two years that after divorcing South Dustin that Anne becomes John Woolley's first plural wife. Actually, these two wives, Julia and Anne, are the only time that he's documented as being plurally married. And this is in 1886. And shes They said that this marriage for Anne and John, everything I, there's, here's, when I say everything I've read, it's the family record kept by Anne's descendants. Anne's descendants say that it was a marriage of fortune, or to be financially agreeable, and no, no one on the woolly side really talks about this marriage, honestly, anyway. One of the, one of the stories, and this is the problem sometimes, too, with using a, a family narrative. that has been submitted to an unofficial archive. One of them wrote that when when Mrs. Roberts' husband, Benjamin, this is the guy in England, died, she married John Woolley. It totally skipped over John Nichols and Seth Dustin, children in between. She's like one line in the record. So he kept, she had a home, John Woolley's home, in one was in Bountiful, and one was yeah, Anne Woolley, Anne Everington lived in Bountiful, and John and Julia lived in Centerville. And that for six years is the documented period of time that that this was a plural marriage. Because then in eighteen ninety two, Julia dies. Julia's they don't really say how she died. <laughs> they just, you know, they she quietly passed away and they wrote down that's what they say the most about her is that she's she was quiet and dutiful and did what she was supposed to do to support her family and polygamy. I don't know if John ever lived with Anne Everington, but the children of some, it just seems like the Woolley family kept, they had a responsibility to a degree. They thought that, because Anne raised some of Julia Searle's nieces and nephews, and Julia Searle's raised some of her nieces and nephews too. They kind of, children or people that needed a place to live would be distributed amongst their homes. Interesting. Yeah. So then Anne is involved with, uh, she ends up being involved, very involved in primary and Bountiful, and she worked with the school system, which I'm not sure how separate that was from primary, because a lot of the schools in early Utah were in churches and wards. And at this time, John Woolley is busy pretty much in Salt Lake. He's on the high council, and he's working in the temple. You know, he's, again, I'm sure, performing marriage ceremonies for people, having been, you know, one of the one of the leaders trusted and revered with plural marriage, I'm sure it was, and this that he was, this is now 1892, Julian died. So he's one of the few, probably, that is allowed to perform plural marriages. at the manifesto being 1890, he's a big secret, so I'm not sure that they really spent hardly any time together. Meanwhile, and I'll, th- I'll bring it in here now about the third wife. The third wife is Annie Fisher, And she's the one that I could find almost nothing about. Find her on the census. She was born in Salt Lake in 1870. So she would have been 16 years old when Anne Everton married John Woolley. So she she's much younger than these people. But she doesn't marry anyone that I can find. She's on the census living with her parents for every census that... Until 1910, and 1910 is when Anne Everington dies, and John Wook marries Anne Fisher-Woolley. That happens in the same year. But there's, I don't know, I don't know when he met Annie Fisher. Because the way it happened with Anne Roberts, right, when he married Anne Roberts in 1886, that was an endowment house marriage. Then, when his first wife Julia died, he took Anne Everington Roberts and legally married her. So she was his wife of civil record at that point. So, in my mind, I don't know when he met Anne Fisher, Annie Fisher. He could have met her and then didn't perform a civil ceremony until 1910, because Anne Roberts died in 1910. The story about him meeting Annie Fisher, doesn't have a date on it. Um, One of his descendants recorded that he met Annie Fisher while he was working in the temple, and she was there to do temple work. He asked her, um, and this, again, is in his family narrative, and I feel like they took a lot of the polygamy out of the narrative. You know, the the. The part about people living as real husband and wives, I think they took that out of a lot of the narrative. So they say that John asked her if she wanted to come live in his bountiful house because he was always in Salt Lake and uh, the local teenagers were, you know, causing problems at his vacant house in bountiful. She and her mother could live there and then they wouldn't bother his house anymore. And she and her mother were kind of destitute and, and took him up on his offer. That's the family narrative. And wow. um, so they say that also the same narrative, though, says that she took care of him and, you know, kept him in his old age and his last illnesses before he died. And that's really all they say about Annie Fisher. She, they would call her grandpa's Annie. She didn't have any children of her own to write her records, so the only people telling her story are John's kids. And then she lived quietly with him. She would have been his wife when he got excommunicated. Then he, that was in 1914, so it would be 14 years later before he died. So she was, you know, she was his wife for 18 years. But there's nothing written about her. And he died in 1914. 19- 28, and she dies 11 years later in 1939. It's interesting to me, there's a couple things when they talk about her taking care of him and they talk about his final illness and things like that. Other stories talk about the Woolies in general and they were, the men were these contrary kind of tough guys that they weren't known for being, like John's father wasn't known for being, you know, Buddy Buddy with Brigham Young. I mean, they were firm friends, but he didn't agree with them all the time. So this is the kind of and John Wickersham Woolley was also supposed to be this, you know, tough old guy. In the in the Woolley family narratives that were turned in to the DUP. And I say this is going to be different than the than the fundamentalist story. Because the people that are turning in their records to the DUP are generally mainstream LDS people. Sometimes they're not LDS at all, but I, I highly doubt that there are fundamentalist DUP groups. I could be wrong. So their version of John Woolley and his importance isn't in these records. So they talk about him in, in the family records that I read. They kind of drop off and say that he, he was a high councilman until 1912, when he had to stop working because he, he had really bad hearing loss. And then he lived out his life and was buried in
0: Centerville. And so that's... <laughs> and, and it ends there, no... Yeah, yeah. Even Just in
1: the, the DUP officials, see the DUP puts out these lessons, the Daughters of Utah Pioneers, and they put out these lessons about things and people that are featured in the museum and in pioneer history. And the, the museum is pretty cool. Uh, it's predominantly LDS, but there are things there from non-LDS pioneers. Very small collection, but still. In the DUP lesson about the Woolies, okay, because they have a whole room with the DUP that is considered the Woolly Parlor because John Woolly's father was such a prominent bishop and person. And also, John's Uh, sister, John's sister kept some good records, but mostly dealing with pre, you know, they don't talk a lot about John and his wives. So there wasn't really stuff I could find there. But when they talk about John Woolley's life, they really only mention, they mention the wives, but sequentially, and they could get away with this, really, because he only had three. And they do mention that he had a plural wife, but they don't go into great detail. And, but they they clearly don't talk about the fact that he was the key to carrying uh, polygamy outside the LDS Church past
0: the manifesto. It's kind of a big part of his story. And it's and it's interesting for me to hear how two different faiths sort of take the same man's life and the main history and take what they want from it. And don't we all sort of do that in a way? Yeah. But, but this has, do. like, lasting... You know effects on people, yeah, because what's interesting is
1: we mentioned before his his place in fundamentalist history, here you've got the first revelation read in his childhood home, and then you have when John Taylor reportedly has this uh vision or visit I should say visitation, it's in John Woolley's home, so And he, and he never really, he didn't, he didn't want to leave the LDS church. He just had really, he had all these spiritual witnesses of what he was doing was right. And so he, he's kind of a devout person in any other framework than, than looking at him later as the founder of, fundamentalists who mainstream Mormons look at as if they're apostate. Part of what was interesting in, in how his status changed, right? And how it affected the wives. Anne Everington Roberts, this B.H. Roberts' mother, when she died, her tombstone said, Anne Everington Woolley. And B.H. Roberts, I don't know the date of this, see, when she died, John Woolley was not considered an apostate at all, because this was still in 1910, there was he hadn't done anything against the church by then, but somewhere along the line, B. H. Roberts swears that he is going to have that tombstone changed, and he does. He gets he, he gets it replaced, and it now says Anne Everington Robert on it. So there's no record of the Nichols, and there's no record of the Dustin, you know, except in her children. I think it was just the fact that. He was, I, and I, I, I just find it amazing that even then there was a, a big difference in how he was seen because he was seen
0: as suddenly an apostate
1: where he'd been part of this revered family, people to get so angry.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, uh, I, I just really love that you, I mean, if you guys knew what Corey had to work with to get these stories, she has done so much work on this. And I think it's amazing to bring these the, the lives of these women out. And for some of the fundamentalist listeners out there, I think that this is a great gift to your community as well. And if you have other things that you want to add that we missed, go ahead and share them with us. And if there is, like, a DUP that we're not aware of for fundamentalist Mormons, uh, send Corey and I a message, because we would definitely be interested in that. Yes, that would
1: be really cool. There's, uh, you know, there were other avenues. Somebody's... Related to these women or interested. I had other ideas and places to go, but that's more on, it's more on the level of writing a book, that kind of research, if you're gonna go wade through. Because I thought maybe Annie Fisher, if she was working in the temple, she could, she might be on some of those, uh, proxy records, I don't know. And things like that. So you could maybe gauge when she really met John Wickersham by some of those records. Things like that, but it becomes, very, very needle in a haystack at that point. Well, I think you've done a really good job. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think, I, I wish, you know, I'd like to know what these women were like. I know from some of the stronger men in my own family tree that the women are perceived, that are married to these men, the women are almost invariably perceived as these soft, docile <laughs> I'm thinking of one in particular that and that's that's not the truth because to think about it, if you're married to a man like that and you still manage to be not downtrodden, you have to have a spine of your own. So I think some of these these women had you know they had they had their own mind and I while I might think that like Anne uh, Everington's methods were a little secretive, and I feel for her a British husband, you know, her testimony maybe. Led her to do that, and I don't know, but that was hard. And she still worked really hard to get her kids here, and um, and was well regarded. and So was Julia, and you know, I, I do wish I knew more about Annie Fisher. I thought that was really sad that there was nothing, <laughs> almost nothing, on her. So, so if anyone maybe. out
0: there knows something about Annie Fisher, please yeah, send us some I'm info. Thinking, someone in the that descended
1: from. John and Lauren, they might have records that aren't in, you know, the typical avenues that I would be looking at. Somebody might have a journal or letters or something like that. But that would be really interesting to know more about her.
0: Well, Corey, what are you working on next?
1: Ah, um, well, we've got Scandinavian part of this, the, the Mormon migration from Scandinavia, and how... How polygamy affected that. It's actually it's pretty interesting with the way it affected immigration between on both ends of that trip. Scandinavian laws were tested and American laws were tested, and it had a lot to do with the fact that the great number of these uh people emigrating were uh doing it because of Mormonism and there were political political uh repercussions and religious repercussions
0: on both ends of that. excited and look forward to that. And, uh, Corey is, as always is out there and, uh, you can talk to her about your genealogy. It's been really exciting, Corey, to see how, I think you've contributed in a large part to this, how people have gotten really excited about their own family history. Well,
1: I I think people, you hear the same old story and all the time and you don't realize that, you know, there's more to the story. Some of your, your, your pioneer story gets kind of polished; and it, it falls into the mix with every other pioneer story you have heard at seminary or primary, and you or even the ones that you don't have a, a a a shiny pioneer story, someone doesn't tell it, and then you go looking around and you find that someone else wrote about your ancestor, or, or there's actually you know whole record, whole journals that. Your, you were your ancestor was somebody's best friend or something, and then you find all this detail. just, I, it's something I really like. So that's fun when other people like
0: it too. Yeah, it's been really fun to see. Well, Corey, as always, I appreciate you coming on, and thanks so much for this research. Thanks for, thanks for letting me talk about it. <laughs> and thanks everyone for joining us on another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.